Well, it is your lucky day. You are about to hear some financial advice that will stick from financial psychologist, Dr. Somers. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F word. Dr. Somers is a fascinating person. Her uncommon combination of expertise in neuroscience, financial psychology, mental health is incredibly interesting. On this episode, we discuss how and why professional athletes declare bankruptcy despite how much money they tend to make. This conversation was sparked as the morning of our recording, Evander Kane, a professional hockey player in the NHL, declared bankruptcy. Our conversation was not geared specifically on Evander Kane, rather how and why so many NHL, MLB, NFL, and NBA players go bankrupt despite how much money their contracts are worth, how the financial systems that they live in influence these bankruptcies. We also examined the complex issues that these players face as a result of the systems they are part of. And we even explore how banks and casinos may be complicit in these professional athletes declaring bankruptcy. And we also talk about how our internal money beliefs shape and influence our financial outcomes. These beliefs drive our financial bus. We talk about how self-efficacy could be one of the greatest financial assets we give to ourselves. And we even talk about financial joy and how we find more of it. This episode is packed with advice that sticks. Enjoy. Welcome back to the Most Hated F Word podcast. Today, my guest is Dr. Somers. She is a nationally recognized expert on the subject of financial psychology with particular interest in factors that affect people's financial decisions and actions. She is a psychologist, a professor, author, and executive coach based in Winnipeg, Manitoba. And I'm sure there's more on that list that I missed. She brings an uncommon combination of expertise in neuroscience, financial psychology, mental health, and behavior change to bear on a wide range of personal and professional challenges. Her work ranges from working with executive coaches, family as a family wealth consultant, financial psychology expert and consultant to the financial services industry, author, and much more. Her book, Advice That Sticks, How to Give Financial Advice That People Will Follow, has become an international bestseller. It tackles head-on the problems of unimplemented financial advice. Dr. Somers, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Lovely to be here. Yeah, I... I I'm really excited to be have you on the show as we were just talking before we started recording. Uh, your name has come up quite a few times and just individuals that, uh, that I have known when I've been talking about behavioral change and financial psychology. Everyone kept saying, oh, you got to talk to Dr. Somers. And I had previously read your book. So I thought, yeah, I, I definitely need to. So it's a pleasure to have you on the show. But for, for our readers, or sorry, our listeners who might not be so familiar with your background, can you give an, us a, I guess, an expl- or 
who you are, how you came to this, this profession, this expertise in financial psychology, uh, behavioral change, and neuroscience? Sure. Well, I've always been really interested in what makes it harder or easier for all of us to reach goals of various kinds. I did my doctoral dissertation, for example, on procrastination. And I have worked as a neuropsychologist in healthcare settings. I'm a professor at a medical school. And so the issue of why don't we follow through with the stuff that will make life better even when we really want to. That's always been fascinating to me. And I don't know, maybe 12 or 15 years ago, I became really interested in applying some of that science of non-adherence to the whole domain of financial behavior. Because despite, you know, our spiritual yearnings that money shouldn't matter, the (laughs) fact is that it does. And I wanted to see if we could help bring about changes within the field of financial advising, within that profession, within even things like banking. And and can we set it up so that people would be able to save more, um, to invest more wisely? What is it that we need? Is it personal change? Is it structural change, systems change? So I've just been... I kind of jumped in with both feet, and uh, it's been a great, great journey so far. Yeah, well, a lot of interesting things just in that last few sentences there about is it structural, is it system, is it individual? And I think when we evaluate, I guess, the current state of our our relationship with money, it, it certainly goes beyond just those individual behaviors to this more structural and systemic issues that, I guess, perpetuate some of these things. And um, I think that's something that I've noticed is we can't always will our way towards doing certain things. Like our willpower depletes, and sometimes there's these, I guess, large structural things that need to change. So I'm, I'm happy that you're working with some banks and other institutions that maybe make it, make it more, I guess, easy for people to save because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I think that our systems could get in the way. And we could. And um, I think you and I were talking about a, a story that's come up in the news just in the past few days uh, about a hockey player. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe you want to talk about him a little bit more, um, but there are some really interesting systemic or structural issues even in that case right even in the case where you might be tempted to sort of point your finger at him and say you know how did how did that happen Mm -hmm. how did you do that to yourself uh but uh uh, yeah just if we could have that discussion about the multifactorial things that influence us including you know, how worn out are we at the end of the day? And do we just put, you know, start dialing for Uber Eats rather than <laughs> opening up the fridge and having the dinner that will cost us $5 as opposed to 15 You know, all of these little micro and macro issues along the way. Yeah, no, and I'm really excited. And I guess that systems conversation, I have some things in my mind about our with Evander Kane, the Canadian hockey player, because so... Evander Kane is a Canadian hockey player who's joined a long list of other professional athletes who have now declared bankruptcy. And I mean, you can go back 
as far as we started like professional athletes is that there's this common trend where professional athletes declare bankruptcy. Um, the NFL has put out studies, the NBA, uh, the ML or the major league baseball league. It doesn't matter the sport. We continuously see these high earning individuals come out and declare bankruptcy. And I think to your point, the caution that I guess, I would like to get your perspective is that we can't always go with our gut reaction of, oh, Evander Kane is spoiled, he's out of touch, he's entitled, irresponsible, greedy, flashy, or just plain dumb because he can't manage the $52 million that he's been given over the past career. But I think, I'm what I, what, not I think, what I'm really interested in knowing is what is what else is at play here? Because it can't, we can't just, he can't be all those things. So from... I guess from Evander Kane's or the other athletes' perspective, what, what's happening here to lead these players who are making tens of millions of dollars in many cases to eventually go bankrupt? So from a, like a psychology perspective, what's happening? You know, I, I wouldn't know him if I fell over him. So let me just say that. And mm-hmm. I don't mean this to be um, disrespectful no. of his journey and his pain, but I have worked with a number of pro athletes and helped um, – try to set up some things that will put guards on this. So um, if when we talk at that level, like here's the story with this particular case. Yes, he signed contracts that are still ongoing. I think Mm -hmm. he's in the middle of one right now that would pay him $49 million over seven years or something like that. But he's $30 million in debt. And so the the question that I want to ask is, how does that happen? Not in, in terms of like, how do you spend that much money, but who will loan you that much money mm-hmm. that you could get $30 million in debt? Um, it doesn't just happen at the, um, at the athlete level. I know of a corporate lawyer who was $40 million in debt. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people, institutions like casinos will just say, oh, he's good for it. Mm-hmm. So there's a million and a half dollar debt to mm-hmm. casinos. There's um, banks who just give them lines of credit that are just unimaginable on the basis of future earnings. Mm-hmm. Um, and there doesn't seem to be so much as a credit check done on some of these folks to see, you know, it, is are they really solid? So those are those are some of the ways that um, lending institutions are in some ways culpable or complicit in helping this kind of thing happen. Mm-hmm. You know, even at the level of, of Joe Schmo, the average citizen, um, I'm often telling my kids as part of their financial education, you know, don't ask the bank how much mortgage you can afford because mm-hmm. the bank will give you enough rope to hang yourself on. <laughs> You need to look at yourself and you need to know yourself and to know what your stress level is and to know what your employment level is and to know what your aspirations are and to see how they line up um, and figure out uh, where you should come out on, on that. Same thing with getting a credit card. You know, I don't know when you got yours, but my first one was on the first day of university. When Same the, as me. When the hall, when the floor of the great hall at the university was littered with credit card applications. I swear my dog could have got one at that point because I got one and I sure didn't have much money. 
Um, so, so there are some of these structural things in place. Um, I'm consulting to um, an organization right now that's got a high level of people defaulting on their loans. And part of it is that they don't want to do a credit check because the, the incentives, the bonuses are all set up that the, the employees get bonuses based on the number of people that they sign up. Mm. The number of bums in the chair or mm-hmm. the number of, of names on a piece of paper. And so they don't have the, the public's best interest at heart. They've got, there are, there are competing um, loyalties, I guess we could say mm-hmm. charitably <laughs> around some of those things. So that's, that's just a, a little example of how you can sometimes get into trouble because you are allowed way more rope than, right. than you really have the space for. I think, you know, with some of the athletes, there are, there are definite living weights. I mean, by definition, they're living way too large. But mm-hmm. what's fueling that? You know, for some right. of them, it's addiction, mm-hmm. whether that's gambling, sex, um, substance. And, you know, the more zeros you add to your net worth, the finer the quality of the stuff you can put up your nose, right? And mm-hmm. it just... Um, so what I, what I'm often saying is that money is like a magnifier, Sean, it, or an accelerant. It doesn't necessarily change you. It just makes you more of what you were. So if you were generous before you were really generous now, and mm-hmm. if you were, um, if you had poor judgment before you have poor judgment on a larger scale now. So we really have to be looking at kind of the inner work of money and the outer work of money and the social context in which it's all situated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, and I really, really like that. Your whole approach to that is like, it's not putting blame on the professional athlete in this case, Evander Kane, so to speak. And when I, when I listed out those, those, uh, initial reactions that we might have is he spoiled out of touch entitled that you're responsible as you're talking. It's, it, it's more, I, I see it as these, these athletes or even ourselves, you and me getting our credit card at university. I had the same thing happen to me is we're just, a, we're, we're, from a systems thinking, our systems are perfectly designed to give the outcomes that, that the system will design in this case Evander Kane or other athletes are in I, I was a hockey player so you grow up playing hockey your whole life you don't really pay attention to school all of a sudden you're dubbed is going to make it so really school is a secondary thought money is a secondary thought the teams want you to be on your team so they're giving you sticks they're giving you things you sign a bonus of one million dollars before that you actually didn't even have a t4 reportable income or <laughs> earned income so to speak and now you're given this money and who's going to know how to handle a million dollars at 18, 19, 20, 21 years old? And we look at the statistics for lottery winners. They're just as high in terms of they run out of money after five years. So I think it's really important that we do look at this from a lens of, are we a subject of the system that we're in? And that, that brings me, you mentioned you worked with uh, other professional athletes in some degree. And I'm curious your perspective on this is like the system of a team. I've heard others talk about um, let, let's say an entry level player comes onto the team, um, signs a contract for seven hundred, nine hundred thousand dollars. A lot of money. 
However, when you go into a locker room where the average salary is $5 million, uh, I guess the cognitive bias of relativity bias might come in. And all of a sudden, we don't actually have that much money. Can you speak to the challenges that even professional players, but this is also transferable down to like even our neighborhoods um, in terms of our relatively bias to our neighbors. So yeah, can you touch on what's happening to those athletes when they go into those teams and then also pair it back to us in our neighborhoods? Yeah, you know, the fact is that the majority of pro athletes and the majority of lottery winners do just fine. We just hear about the ones that don't, right? So, so it, it's part of it is a, an availability heuristic. Like, what yeah, yeah. do we hear about, right? Um, and the fact is that organizations like the NFL Players Association have been working their butts off to try and m- ensure that there are fewer of these. Um, heartbreaking stories afterwards. Um, and that starts during rookie week when they, when people come on board and they, they help. Um, I'm, I work with an organization that helped put in just a little bit of the, there, there was only a half day allowed during rookie week for financial education. So we, <laughs> we, they really had to think about what went in and what didn't. Um, but, Again, when, when you think about it, when I walk down the street, nobody looks at me like I am a walking cash dispenser. Mm-hmm. Nobody looks at me like I am the answer to all their financial problems. I'm, I'm anonymous, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so that's busted for them. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my salary isn't known. That's busted for them. Um, and they there is a culture that you're supposed to live large. Even Mm -hmm. the rookies in the NFL, there's been a long tradition of the rookie party and the rookie is supposed to fund an amazing party for the whole team. That's, it's kind of like their version of um, hazing almost Mm -hmm. (laughs) or initiation. Um, And so working to change problematic aspects of culture is, is one aspect and then helping the players the lottery winners, the um, the people who are, have become really successful in business, you know, startups, for example, tech companies that have gone mm-hmm. really successfully. It's helping them manage their own expectations and other people's expectations for themselves. It's helping them develop assertiveness. Mm-hmm. It's actually role-playing with them around um, how to how to say I'm I don't know I'm just about to start my season and I need to be able to put all of my energy into playing. Mm-hmm. Um, my money's tied up for now, um, and I will be making decisions at the end of the season and, and beyond about what I what I want to do with it. But for now, the, nothing will be happening. I'm just even giving people the words around that. Mm -hmm. Frankly, it's, you know, at a much more relatable level. Um, I work with a number of families who have kids in private school and they talk about how it doesn't take very long. You know, you're in grade two and you know who the wealthiest family is in school because that's sort of the playground chatter. Mm -hmm. And it's, so everything is context specific mm-hmm. and, and the pressures on people and what it is that 
that brings judgment or praise that's culturally varying. So when we're looking at how people are behaving and what kind of setbacks they're experiencing, we need to consider it not only at the level of how were they complicit in their own, in, in their own difficulties, how did they participate in that, what were the drivers of it psychologically and emotionally, um, and what are some of the cultural things that we need to be aware of and support them in dealing with. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that you, you, you always hear about sports psychologists. Like if we work with sports psychologists to make sure that we are, are getting that extra edge, but you've already, you're doing some work. It sounds like with sports, with athletes already, and maybe more and more the working with a psychologist or financial psychologist is going to be more of a common practice with these athletes because I couldn't imagine the pressures. And when we look at like from a family systems, I even, you know, it's interesting that we, we started talking about this because a couple of weeks ago, I saw something on social media where it had a round table of four or five NFL players talking about, mm-hmm. um, about just dealing with being a millionaire at 18 years old. And I went back and found it. And there's this quote and it was, when I was drafted, I had not finished school. Uh, I didn't graduate and I didn't care because baby, I was going to play ball and I was going to play with the best team in the country. Everyone knows I'm good and I'll play forever. I quickly learned that wouldn't be the case. We players back then, this was a while ago, had no education. We we're just exposed to the wolves. And, and, and then they started talking more about what you were talking about, the expectations of being almost an ATM about the family. And, and I thought that was really fascinating about the family system. And all five of them came from lower income families growing up. And they all said, like, we gave. And I guess that's part of our ancestral behaviors is to protect our tribe, so to speak. And they said that the, the, it was so difficult to say no to people. And I like how you talked about creating those boundaries. Um, be, uh, around people asking for money but can you can you explain like how challenging could that be for somebody and again that could be ourselves but so someone who's growing up their family drove them to all these sports or maybe just for the, the normal person like myself my parents drove me to sports to all of a sudden get all this windfall of money like what is the emotional confliction going on in ourselves when this money comes in people need help it's our family they've always helped us can you just explain what's going on in someone like psychologically when, when they're presented with a situation like that? Mm -hmm. You know, part of it is, um, the sense of, of where do you feel comfortable financially? Where do you think you, you belong? And, There is a notion that we see within the financial therapy literature, Sean, that we all have a financial set point. Mm -hmm. That is, we all have this sense that that there's kind of like this strata and I, me and my people are in this zone. So we all belong in the struggle zone below $40,000. And once I go too close to that $40,000 mark, or I start, you know, if I double that, it becomes an issue of, um, where do I belong now? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and let's say you go to $400,000. Where are my people? And what are my people going to think of me if I switch neighborhoods? Mm-hmm. And um, 
And so what the notion of set point is, is that if you don't come to terms with these unconscious drivers of your behavior, you will spend yourself back to the level of where you you belong. Mm. And that can go in either direction. If you, um, in my family, there was an expectation in, in previous generations that um, marriage would would help to um, set the family fortune for the broader family. And if somebody decided to marry for love instead of for strategic alliance, I and mean, really, I don't come from royalty, so this is a little overstated. <laughs> but <laughs> if you know that that you should marry somebody who will allow you to be in this zone where our people reside. So it can happen at a bunch of different levels. Um, to, to have to declare bankruptcy is one level of setback. Um, but there are all, all different ways throughout the course of a life that all of us will experience some fluctuation in our financial life. And sometimes it's voluntary. Mm-hmm. Like um, you decide that you're going to take a lower paying job because otherwise you're going to lose your mind mm-hmm. or you're going to go back to school and you're going to stop earning altogether. Mm-hmm. And um, there, you may get judgment about that from other people, or you may get a, a real yikes response from yourself and feel really uncertain. Have you ever done anything like that? Walked away from one level in order to get a different experience of life? Yeah, and um, and I think that's a something that, like you said, voluntary or non-voluntary. And... Um, when, when, when I first think about it, uh, my, my thoughts, are, I guess, off the bat are no. But then when I, when I actually think about it is, yeah, I have several of those. And I think um, that speaks to me about just the, the journey of life and how it's a mountain without a top, but it's always taking that next step forward. Mm-hmm. And I mean, when you're climbing that mountain, there's always that other mountain on the other side where you're like, Hey, that looks a lot better. So you try to go over there to climb it. <laughs> and when I look back at my life, yeah, there's several times where I could have kept climbing a certain mountain, but, um, I decided to take, take a different, take a different route because, um, when I made that goal to climb that mountain, I was fundamentally a different person. And what I've started to realize is that every day that I acquire new information, I'm a new person. If I set a goal at the beginning of 2021, maybe I don't even want that goal by the end of 2021 because I've acquired this new information that unlocks a certain step. So uh, to answer your question, yeah, I I think fortunately I've never had a a major financial dramatic involuntary setback, but I've had many involuntary setback, uh, voluntary involuntary ones that have prevented certain doors that I could have opened. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking about the normal, you know, other kinds of normal ones that, that weren't voluntary. You know, my dad died when I was 13, for example. So that was a setback mm-hmm. in, in that was a tragedy. And that also had obvious financial consequences. Um, as a, as somebody who works within healthcare, I can tell you all the day about every day I work with folks who's, lives were turned around in a heartbeat because of a traffic accident mm-hmm. or a slip and fall um, or because of the, because of a diagnosis that mm-hmm. came their way, a healthcare diagnosis. Um, 
COVID has been like this masterclass for us all, hasn't it? In terms of financial setbacks that you could, for me, it's just taught me like put down the pen because that prophecy that I thought I, you know, the thing that I thought I knew for sure about how life worked. Nope. Mm -hmm. I don't, it can be turned on a dime. Mm -hmm. And so we all have to learn how to somehow hold the reins lightly. We know that there are some things that appear to be true, like, savings is better than no savings that Mm -hmm. appears to still be (laughs) part of the canon of truth right we know that covid it has just packed a huge mental health wallop for people and that one of the main ways that it's done that has been through adding financial stress Mm -hmm. people who had savings going into this have fared better than those who haven't Mm -hmm. um so yeah just the the way life can whether with whether it's with our participation and consent, whether it's embraced and welcomed, whether it's dreaded, whether it's regrettable, you know, like some of the pro players afterwards think, oh, if I could just go back and talk to my younger self. But um, I think we just need all of us need to know how to forgive ourselves, how to how to encourage ourselves, how to ask for help when we need it. And, uh, and surround ourselves with really good people at all levels. Right. And so uh, you kind of answered a question that you're making me think about is, so life has this up and down trajectory. And in, in, with your experience, and I, I know part of your work is dealing with individuals, like you mentioned, who have terminal diagnosis. Um, is there, whether we're Evander Kane or one of the other professional athletes who hit this uh, big road bump of bankruptcy or someone who got that diagnosis, just the people that you've been dealing with, is there a certain trait or um, yeah, I would say a trait that they embody that you see. I know there's not one end all be all, but one trait that really is consistent by people who bounce back and can get through that, um, that setback. Mm bouncing it just sounds like something that's built into your molecular structure that allows you to do that right like <laughs> somebody's rubber somebody's cement and, yeah. and they'll have a different outcome uh the good news bad news from my perspective is that it's um resilience isn't a fixed characteristic it's actually something that waxes and wanes in direct response to what we do mm-hmm. and to how we talk to ourselves about things mm-hmm. So, you know, in the, in the psychology world, for example, there's this truism that the best predictor of future behavior is, can you guess? Past behaviors. Past behavior. There you go. If you had only one horse to bet on, what's the best predictor of future behavior? It's past behavior. But that's really an, like, so what is my, is my answer to that? I'm not trying to predict future behavior usually i'm trying to help people change their behavior to so that it's in line with what could possibly get them to where they want to go so do you know what the best predictor of changed behavior is what's that self-efficacy the belief that you can do this thing Mm mm-hmm Makes a lot of sense, right? Like if you don't believe that you that it's even within the genetic cards for you to lose weight, then why would you even start to try? Mm-hmm. 
Um, if you don't believe that anybody can take what can lose weight and keep it off permanently, then why would you even try? And if you don't believe that even if a million other people could do it, that you personally couldn't, then why would you even try? And it's the same thing around financial behavior. If, if the self-talk driving um, the bus is that you're a financial screw-up or that your mistakes are irrecoverable uh, or that everybody's judging you or maybe it's the other way around, that you're, you're golden, you're untouchable, um, that the money will always be there, that, that you're like Midas and nothing will ever knock you off, um, then that's going to result in some really different behaviors. So part of the work is, is absolutely trying to surface some of those unconscious drivers. What is it that you believe about yourself? Mm-hmm. And is that in service of, of what you want your family life to be like? Mm-hmm. of what you want your business life to be like, right? Do these beliefs serve you well, or is it time to change them up? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and um, I really, really like that perspective. And uh, um, I mean, I think at some level, we're all <laughs> selfish people who just think about ourselves. So as you're talking, I'm like, hey, how is this related to me? Um, it's human <laughs> tendencies, right? Uh, but okay. I, um, for, for a long time, I... I put my head down and I just worked hard. I had this like vision at a 27 year old set that I was going to do this, 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 and, um, setbacks would come and I would just put my head down and go through them. But, but I didn't understand the toll that it was actually taking on me. I I didn't have time. I kept myself busy. I would run marathons, Ironmans, triathlon. I would just keep myself busy. Um, and it wasn't until the last couple of years that I, I realized that, you know, you saying change up those beliefs that I realized that my, my action oriented itself was just that little tip on top of the iceberg, but underneath I was neglecting of what are the thoughts, feelings, and beliefs that are ruminating below that iceberg. And it wasn't until I actually started to during setbacks, which I mean, I've had in, in all realms of life, many of those more than, uh, we'd have time to enter or talk about, but, uh, um, I, I, I realized how, powerful it is just to sit with those emotions mm-hmm. and sit with the learnings that come from those emotions instead of just being like flatlined emotion like no i'm good i'm good i'm good i'm good so maybe can you talk about um what what, what value can we have when we're trying to make that change change some beliefs to just sit feel our emotions and what's at risk if we we don't do that and especially in our financial world which is so emotional and like you said it's a conduit for our emotions so from a financial setback perspective what is the value of really sitting and trying to make sense of the emotions i think um there's that old truism that the unexamined life is not worth living and i think it's not worth living because what it, what it causes you to do is to actually miss your life. Mm-hmm. It causes you to just go down the cattle chute that you happen to be in and to just keep on mm-hmm. um, being herded along without really looking at your own evidence about, is this abundance? Is this really, am I getting what I want to? When I look at the things that make me come alive versus the things that make me want to put a fork in my eye, 
uh, am I setting up my life so that it's actually reflective of that reality? Um, so not, not just sort of sitting down and contemplating your navel for one intense period and then thinking you've got it all, but really paying regular attention to yourself on a daily basis. You know, sometimes like, uh, you remember that uh, the Christmas Carol story with Scrooge when he was getting visited by these ghosts, he was like, <laughs> the line that always makes me laugh, perhaps this is just a bit of undigested beef. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe this will just all go away. <laughs> and so on any given moment, you know, we could be grumpy, we could be scared, we could be enthusiastic, and it could just be a bit of undigested beef. And it really mm-hmm. doesn't mean anything about us in the long run. But what you get when you stop long enough to notice what you're feeling and how you're doing and what matters to you, what you get over time is this accumulation of evidence about who you are and and maybe even who who you're meant to be, Mm -hmm. who it is that you want to be. Mm -hmm. And then then you can make sure that the monkeys are not running the zoo here, that it's Mm -hmm. actually you, your you're making the decisions in line with what matters to you. That saves you from having one of those like crazoid midlife crisis things that we all laugh about, which is, you know, the red car and trading in your spouse for two half their age. (laughs) Um, It allows you to, to be in alignment with yourself all the way through. There may still be a midlife crisis, but it's not like, likely to be one that's just this blowout period of dissatisfaction. It's more likely to be a continuation of what's calling to me. Right. And you know, as you're saying this, I, I'm, I'm always so uh, more and more, I hear conversations like this. I'm convinced that as a financial planner, we look at asset class, equity, stocks, bonds, whatever. The, the asset class that we never talk about is ourself. And this idea actually is you're saying is self-efficacy of like the control that we have. If we just did what you said, would we even need to retire? <laughs> like maybe we want to oh, retire I from- Oh, I love that question. Yeah. Or it might be, would we even need to work, right? Like it, yeah. it, could, it could come from different levels. Mm-hmm. Like I work with a lot of folks right now who have, you know, unexpected wealth. Mm-hmm. They, they just had sudden business success or professional success in their athletic or, or entertainment endeavors. And they wouldn't ever have to work another day in their life if that's the only, if the only thing you're thinking about is financial outcome. But of course, if work brings meaning and joy and connectivity and the capacity to just develop excellence and to go deep, um, then why would you want to retire from that? Right? Plain Sudoku um, doesn't sound too fun. <laughs> There's only so much golf. Yeah. There's, yeah. And I think There's, when we talk about those system levels, I like we get pumped into the system that you don't think this way. You got to get your pension. You got to get your promotion. You got to get your, and, and we're almost robbed of this idea that we have this ability to get to a place of self-efficacy that um, we can have these thoughts. And, and I, I do know that for many people, 
getting the basic needs of survival. And uh, I'm fortunate that, that I don't have to think of those basic needs as, as survival. And I, and I know that this is not a conversation for everybody, but for a lot of the, the corporate roles and I don't know, without going too much against a corporate corporation, but I think it just strips us from this ability to find out who we are. And like, to your point, if we took some time to understand that we don't probably need as much money and so forth. Yeah. Um, Yeah, And you, I so appreciate your, your recognition of the fact that there are folks who struggle to just get basics and we're back to what are the systemic limitations on their ability to get beyond that? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, we don't need to quote chapter and verse of all of the literature on the disadvantage faced uh, by people of color, by, by people with disabilities, by people um, whose gender orientation is not conforming to the culture in which, in which they live. I mean, it's just, um, there's all kinds of ways in which you can be held back by, by structural Mm -hmm. forces. Uh, And that being said, you, you don't stand a chance of getting out of it. If, if you don't have support Mm and or self-efficacy, right. the belief that something different is possible, yes, even for you. Mm-hmm. Right? At all levels, um, those things come into play. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yet, when do we hear working on self-efficacy? I, it's not a common thing. Instead, uh, especially in the financial world, it, we don't we don't talk about those things. So I think it's um, it's a conversation that needs to be had and that forgotten asset class of ourself, I think is just so important. I mean, we're the ones who drive our incomes, decide how much, how much of a lifestyle we want to, I guess, live, which dictates how much money we have or need, which dictates how much time we have to trade for, uh, money. And yeah, I think it's really, um, I think 2020, for, at least for myself, really, really had a pause to be like, whoa. Am I going down the track that I really, really want to? And uh, fortunately, uh, my family and I, we didn't have any major illnesses. And, and we had that time and space to um, to think about that. And as I'm saying that, it reminds me of a book. I don't know if you've ever read the book Scarcity. Mm-hmm. And they talk about having that slack. So, you know, we might have that mental bandwidth tax, I think, um, which is just, yeah. I guess I just want to make a point on <laughs> having that slack. Yeah. I think it's creating that slack. I don't know what's your take on how could we create some of that slack that allows us to reduce that mental bandwidth tax? You know, one of the things that, uh, so this is a book for the readers, um, right. scarcity. I think the subtitle is why having so little means why having too little means so much. And it's written by two professors of behavioral economics who have looked at scarcity across the wealth spectrum. And they've looked at financial scarcity, whether it's real or imagined. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've looked, so by imagined, what I mean is that they just take off, you know, ask people in the mall to come and participate in this experiment. And the instruction is to imagine that you're facing an unexpected repair bill, of a car repair bill of $3,000. Um, imagine what that would mean for your life. Um, how, how would you deal with that? And then immediately afterwards, they give them uh, an aspect of an IQ test. 
And what they find is that even people who are imagining this bill, they're, uh, they're part of their IQ score plummets. It's a short term, it's a temporary phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Everybody recovers from it. But it just, um, that's what led them to talk about the cognitive tax of financial stress. Mm -hmm. But it turns out that it's not only financial scarcity that can do that to us. It can also be time scarcity. Mm -hmm. It can be love scarcity. Um, and, And sometimes we can be, you know, knee deep in a river and drowning of thirst that we're not really paying attention to all of the all of the things that are around us that are available to us to meet our needs. And sometimes we're, um, sometimes we're on a dry riverbed and it's really important that we make that distinction. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and cause there, there's different strategies involved, obviously for problem solving. One is, you know, in the first it's, um, catching up to your actual reality, um, and, and availing your, of the resources that are there and allowing you allowing them to penetrate you and to uh, allowing yourself to experience abundance or experience sufficiency Mm -hmm. there's a you know most religious traditions have got um scripture verses around that you know that that become the basis on which people meditate um that that somehow God will supply all your need, and and what that does is it just puts you in a different zone, um, so that you can actually start to see in what ways that's actually true. Mm-hmm. And then for the folks who are in the who are on that dry riverbed and and really really thirsty, to begin to say how might I be able to get out of here. Mm-hmm. How might I be able to address that? And in my book, financial advisors play a huge role in that, Sean, in helping people figure out how to turn financial hardship around and how mm-hmm. to get a plan that might get you to where you need to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, your book, which we got right here, does a really good job of giving, as the title suggests, advice that sticks. And what I appreciate is you'd look at that, those hardships and um, how can we as financial planners give advice that people are actually going to, in your terms, be implemented instead of the unimplemented. And this, this idea of like um, the mental bandwidth tax, I think is, 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 is relevant for Evander Kane or ourselves is whether, he, you know, we uh, sometimes these systems that we're in just put so much cognitive load on us that we can't make decisions. And it was really interesting when I was telling my wife about this book, um, we were out for a road trip and our kids wanted the music turned up and they were crying. And there was a song that usually gets our daughter who's two to stop crying. And I, and my wife's like, turn it up. I'm like, I'm trying. It's broken. It's not working. As I'm explaining right before this, this book. And I'm like, so, and then I realized that I was turning the heat knob, not the volume. And I'm like, so anyways, an example of, uh, of a cognitive bandwidth tax is when your kids are yelling and you're really trying to turn up the TV, but, or uh, the, the volume, but you turn up the heat. But yeah, when, when, when we're, we're, when our, as they put it, when our operating system is overloaded, we can't make those decisions. And I think to, to your point and what you make in the book about um, those setbacks, if we have some of that slack, 
so to speak, we can, we can be more, would you agree we can be more resilient in those setbacks? Yeah. You, you know, the, but part of it is having eyes to see it. So here's, here's what I'm going to give you a really distilled version of the entire body of literature on resilience, which is that there is no resilience in the absence of positivity. Mm-hmm. Okay. You yeah. cannot be resilient in the absence of positivity. And, and so that does not mean plastering on the fake smile and doing yeah. the, you know, Saturday night live. I'm smart enough. I'm handsome yeah. enough and gosh, darn it. People like me. No, what we're talking about is the positivity that penetrates to the soul level, right? The belly laugh, not the social smile. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, and it doesn't just have to, positivity doesn't only come in on the joy channel, right? It can come in on the meaning channel. It can come in on the gratitude channel. It can come in on the curiosity channel. Um, So however it is, can you be open, even in the middle of hardship, can you be open to some aspect of positivity that could begin to transform you? Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the earliest books on this topic was written by Viktor Frankl. It's called Man's Search for Meaning. And mm-hmm. he talks about how when everything else is taken from you, there's still one positivity channel that's open. And that is your ability to find or create, more to the point, to create meaning out of the choices that you make in this, even in the middle of uh, Holocaust, mm-hmm. um, which is where this book comes out of for him. So fortunately, the majority of us do not have anything that begins to compare with that level of hardship, but we have our own levels of hardship. Mm-hmm. And it's really important that we be willing to not waste the pain, right? That we acknowledge that this is flipping miserable. I am flipping miserable. Mm-hmm. This is hard not to underplay that, but then to open yourself up to things that will give you peace, joy, curiosity, all of those things we talked about. And then, because you will start to feel a shift in your energy at that point, the third ingredient in the resilience recipe after hardship and then positivity is resources that you, that you use this growth, this, this, change in perspective and the energy that that brings to start building on the resources that you need. So I think that financial professionals do have a huge role to play in that. They are one of the fundamental resources, for example, and they can contribute to self-efficacy by showing people that this is, this is doable. You can do this. People do this. In fact, Mm. you're already 20% of the way there or you're, 30, there's a, hey, look, there's only 30% more to go until you reach this goal. Um, you're going to have to be looking at new goals because that one's going to be covered soon. Um, and so for the listeners, I would, I would say if you don't have somebody in your financial life who provides that for you, then look further afield. Um, find somebody who gets you. Mm-hmm. Find somebody competent and ethical and really smart technically, but also somebody who is equally skilled on the personal side of advising. Mm -hmm. You know that, so we could have probably talked about 
investments and we could have sounded very smart and <laughs> and and there's a, the, you, you know <laughs> but this to me to people that I've talked to this is what really matters because um yeah money's important we know that but if we don't have this under control you know the money doesn't matter we like you mentioned we had these midlife crises where we're buying these cars getting new spouses um i just really really appreciate your perspective and that that overall i guess not it wasn't a summary but approach to um like when you went through the resilience part but if we don't have that then the money doesn't matter. Um, it, like, okay, oh, we're, does, we're more likely to make dumb financial decisions right. or regrettable financial decisions, or we're more likely to just go shuffling down that cattle chute mm-hmm. into um, a, a not so great future. Um, but it doesn't have to be that way. And, no. Uh, and that's in, good interesting thing. about um, uh, my, my podcast tagline is um, the intersection of what matters or intersection of money our minds and what matters most. And, and I'm, your title is money, mind and meeting is your title. <laughs> um, so I just, yeah, I really appreciate your message. I, I see the time here and this hour flew by. Um, do you have time for a couple questions about your book and then uh, a final question? Sure. Sure. I'll, I'll make it quick. So I always get people to give a book recommendation based on the context of our conversation. So uh, our book recommendation will be your book. Um, can you explain to the <laughs> listeners, uh, um, you've already touched on the book, but explain to the listeners, I guess, uh, uh, another version of what your book is, who does it serve, and uh, where can they find a copy, which I'm assuming is everywhere. But. Sure. Um, The book isn't really meant for the general public. You know, it's not a personal finance book. It was a book um, that was my sort of offering to the financial services community to help more and more financial advisors get better at the human side of the Mm -hmm. equation. Um, So it's, it's really written for anybody who gives financial advice for for a living or as part of their job so if you're a business consultant if you're an an accountant a lawyer a cfp uh, it was meant to help you understand why why sometimes really great advice seems to fall into an abyss and and doesn't Mm -hmm. get acted on and to really make make those professionals get themselves and what it is that they might be able to do differently to help um to help achieve better outcomes for the people they serve. Now I have uh, to say, general, Oh, I was going to say, I read your book as a financial planner, but as I was reading it, it's like, you know, this is a, as a consumer, I, I really enjoyed the book as things that like a financial planner should be saying. And um, I really think all, everyone who's interested in um, like advice that sticks or what financial planners should be doing. I, I really do think they would enjoy it because they, then they're more educated on what advisors should be doing. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, thank you for that. Um, I do um, have a website, moneymindandmeaning.com that has some blogs on it that are of more, uh, are of broader interest, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, some pretty good, goofy titles like I just wrote about falling and breaking my arm right before Christmas <laughs> and, uh, and uh, my attempt to find meaning or create meaning <laughs> rather out of that event. Um, there's some information in there about what I think are the, are the bedrock financial skills for modern families. And I mean, 
regular families, mm-hmm. right? Like not not the ultra high net worth families. Um, although you know, yes, there are some; those are foundational for them too. But it's all of us need to know how to bring um, financial savvy into our family and combine that with self knowledge and tenderness. Uh, towards our family members, towards our spouses and our kids, so that we can admit mistakes, we can recover from mistakes, we can set goals together, we can, on occasion, bring each other into the wrestling ring and uh, and figure out how are we going to make things that might at first seem conflicting, like we can't get going in the right direction, how can we make that happen? Um, so there are some blogs that people might find helpful or interesting there. Oh, great. I'll, and I'll put those all in the show notes as well. And so my final question is, um, let's fast forward till you're 90 years old and you're writing a letter to your great-grandchildren about, the, about your lived experiences on what you found to be a good uh, relationship with money. What would, you, what would you say in that letter to them on how to, based on your experience, have a good relationship with money? Well, in my fantasy world, I could tell them how I became a swimsuit model when I was 60 and how that just completely turned my... Yeah. <laughs> you have to have that belief. Um, <laughs> um, you know, I would probably point them to uh, that blog that I wrote many, many years prior about how there are some foundational things that, that just have to be in place around having marketable skills and, and have, and put it, but putting those through the filter of what matters to them, you know, so that there's lots of, places that could use your talents. In fact, the world could eat you up and spit you out a million times over. It's a needy, needy world. And those needs are legitimate. But our job is to figure out what are the, what are the problems that bring us joy to address? Mm-hmm. Where do we, and, and to continually work at finding that spot between what does the world need and where do you want, where does your joy come from and bringing those together in a way that is sustainable for that, you? Well, that's great. I think that's the, the, I guess the ultimate goal of life is to find that joy. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be uh, on the podcast to speak to our listeners. I, I really, really appreciate you taking the time today. It was a joy. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in this week in my conversation with Dr. Somers. If you've been enjoying these episodes, please head over to Apple Podcast. I really would enjoy you taking one, two, three, four, five whatever it is, minutes to leave a review. These reviews help secure and get wonderful guests like Dr. Somers. Thank you. Until next time, have a great day.